Good morning, Icon. If you will, remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Uh, If you're using the blue paperback Bibles in the pew, you can find that on page 481. Uh, I'll give you a second to find that there. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that that your word is relevant for every area of our life. And sometimes we we just need reminding of that, that your word is not irrelevant, it's not distant and in the past, but today, right now, it speaks to us. And it speaks to us where we're at. And specifically today, as we talk about the topic of marriage and we begin a new series that we're going to talk about marriage in, I thank you that we don't have to search elsewhere in order to understand what marriage is or even to be helped and comforted and restored in our marriages. We can look to you for that. And so, Father, I pray that today as we explore some of the reality of marriage and in some ways reawaken ourselves to what marriage really is and what it is not, God, I pray that you would be our helper, that you would clarify for us the ways that we've gotten marriage wrong and that we've come in with uh, expectations that are unhelpful. And so, Father, would you be our helper today? Would you, you help us in, in seeing what marriage really is, God? And so would you unite your power with my weak words and give us clarity, clarity today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, good morning, friends. Uh, I am excited to kick off a new series uh, today called Contested Marriage. Um, I also want to say hello to everyone on the live stream. Uh, I never do that. I always forget that you're there, but I know a lot of people are sick today, so I want to call it out. Hey, live stream. Um, it's good to, good to be with you guys. So for the next five weeks, uh, we really, for the month of October, we're going to be walking through the topic of Marriage. Now, now it's always helpful to kind of set up a series so we know what it is about, but I think it's also important in a series on marriage uh, to help you see what this series is not. 
Um, sometimes when you hear a series on marriage at a church, it's, sometimes it's unhelpful and we don't really know what we're supposed to walk away with. And one of the ways I think we can clarify that is, is kind of defining for us what this series is not. And so, like I said, for the next five weeks, we're going to be covering marriage and it's called contested marriage. I'll get into why we call it that here in a second. But I want to clarify for you what this series is not going to be so that we can kick it off rightly. Okay. So, so first... This series is probably not one of those series where every single week is going to be directed straight at you. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we just finished up Revelation. All of that was really right at you, and hopefully the weeks on end was helpful. But I know in a series like this, it's, it's not always going to be so. If you're married, there are going to be some weeks in this series that is uniquely helpful to you. But then, on the same side, there may be one that doesn't really apply to you. And so I just want to Speak that clearly. That's okay. Um, we're going to be talking about a few different things as it relates to marriage, and it's okay if, if one of these things that we talk about is not something that you struggle with in your marriage, and that's, that's okay. Um, if it's not an area of struggle, just tune in and have a refresher uh, and wait for one that's actually speaking to you. Second, uh, and this is really important, I want you to look at me. This series is not an improper elevation of marriage. <laughs> That's really important to hear. So, so I, don't, I don't feel led to do a series on marriage because marriage is the most important thing in the world. Because as we'll see later in the text, it's not. We'll see today that marriage is indeed sacred because it is sanctioned by God. However, the church has too often elevated marriage as if it's the pinnacle of Christian relationships and Christian maturity. And I just want to clear from the outset, I, clear, clear that from the outset, I, I just don't believe that's true. Like I said, marriage, marriage is important and deeply sacred. The Apostle Paul calls marriage a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. That sounds pretty important, right? However, he also says it's a picture of Christ in the church. In our language, in our language we often say that marriage is the picture of Christ in the church, but that's not what Paul actually says. Paul doesn't locate the illustration of Christ and his people exclusively in marriage. Marriage has some very unique aspects that allow it to be a picture of the gospel, without a doubt. But friends, that doesn't mean it's the only human relationship that's able to illustrate the glory of the gospel. Can we just make that clear? Do you understand that? It's not the only relationship that's able to clarify God's love for his people. If you're here and you're not married, I want you to hear that. Marriage is not the pinnacle of the Christian life and you are not God's stepchild that just never had a relationship work out. Throughout the series, I really want to work hard to help you see that, that the things we're going to talk about can very well be applied to your life as well. But you need to know from the outset, singleness in the Christian life is not an inherent defect. Okay? Marriage is not everything. And finally, this, this series, as we, again, this is just set up. This series is not a counseling session or a therapy session. Okay? If you are in, if you're married and you need some specific help, uh, we have a lot of places that we can connect you with, but I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on marriage. Also, Courtney and I are not the ideal couple that everyone needs to strive after, okay? 
feel like that needs to be said because anytime a pastor does a marriage series, it's like, it's almost assumed that they're the ideal couple that is just getting everything right. But I want to make clear, that's not so. Courtney and I have been married for nine years next week. So almost a decade of lessons, losses, hurts, and great wins. But we are not the ideal couple that is just here to teach and coach everyone, okay? We have a lot that we'd love to share with you and walk you through, but that doesn't mean that we're the poster couple for marriage. We're walking this road of gospel grace just like everyone else. So that's what this marriage, that's what the series as we get into it is not going to be. But here's what it is, okay? Here's what it is. Here's what I know. Marriages are never neutral. We've called this series Contested Marriage because I believe there are always things going on in marriage that are setting the trajectory for what that marriage will be like in the coming years. Marriages are never neutral. In marriage, there are certainly dull days, but there are never neutral days. Instead, there is always something fighting for ground in your marriage. There's something trying to gain ground. And friends, there, there's conflicting and competing desires that are right now fighting for your marriage. Right now. There are things that want to win in your marriage. There are desires and mindsets and ambitions that are pulling your marriage either toward health or away from it. And the desire for this series is to simply call your attention toward those competing things and and help you fight for help from a Christian framework, okay? There are things that want to win ground in your marriage, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you'll see some of those things throughout the next five weeks and, and be helped in how to fight for help. And so if you look at the bulletin that you received on the way in, you can see exactly what competing things we're gonna be talking about throughout this series. Uh, it's kind of a new thing that we're doing. Every month you'll see what sermons we're gonna do and what events, and you can see the title for those sermons. You can see we're gonna get into some stuff, right? <laughs> That's right, we're gonna get into it. But today, to, to kick it off, I, wa- I wanna talk about the competing mindsets of reality versus fantasy in your marriage. Of reality versus fantasy. Now this is one in the contesting that I, I really sympathize with because it's one that in my marriage I've most struggled with. So I've, I've always been a romantic, can't tell you that? always been a romantic. I've always wanted a relationship. I've always wanted someone to connect with. And I mean at a very early age. My first kiss was when I was four years old. That's my daughter's age. Yikes. And I, 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 I was in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, and just like Little Rock, Arkansas, the way that I got that first kiss is she told me that if she made chocolate milk from the water that came through the creek, that she would give me a kiss. And I was like, Okay, I'll do it. Um, so that was my first kiss story. Um, she made chocolate milk uh, with water that came from the creek behind her house, and she promised a kiss if I would drink it. Of course I did, right? That sounds like Little Rock, Arkansas, right? <laughs> sounds like something that would happen there. And from then on, from that moment when I was four years old, I was hooked. I, I was hooked on the potential of, of closeness to another person of connection to another person. Of course, my little four-year-old self couldn't really identify that, but I I can look at the history of my childhood and see, man, I just wanted to connect with someone. I was a romantic, but my my romanticism and my gooey heart, friends, it it was eventually warped by, by fantasy and unrealistic expectations around what a relationship actually was. 
Every relationship I had, I came into it with such high expectations. My older brother used to call me a serial monogamist. What that means is that every single person I dated, that was the one person I was going to marry. <laughs> That's healthy, right? Yikes. You can laugh with me, guys. This is, this is supposed to be me putting myself on the chopping, uh, the chopping block. So I would cling to people in a very unhealthy way. I was a very clingy child. In fact, there's a, a, a girlfriend I had when I was 12 uh, whose name was Madison St. Germain, hmm, the one that got away at 12 years old. And I was very clingy with Madison. I remember our first date. Uh, we went to go see Chicken Little. Of course, that's what you do. Um, and it was a great movie. You know, I thought we connected well, sitting beside one another, watching Chicken Little. And uh, her mom came to pick her up because we were 12 years old. And, and uh, it was our first day, but I thought, shoot, I'm going to go for it. And so her mom is picking her up in the van, and, um, and I, she's getting into the car. I was too timid until the last moment. And I, like, reach in for a kiss, uh, and she just closes the door <laughs> and drives off. And from that moment, I wanted what I could not have in Madison St. Germain. Um, I kept uh, pursuing her, wanting her. In fact, uh, I was so in love with uh, Maddie that uh, when my family got a new dog, it, it was my job to give its name, uh, and I named it Madison. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> So yeah, we had, a, we had a dog named Madison, all because of me, all because I was so clingy. And of course, with those unrealistic expectations, when things didn't work out, I was heartbroken, right? I was heartbroken. There were so many days that I just spent playing Roller Coaster Tycoon, listening to Story of the Year, just drowning my sorrows and hating this dog that I had named after my ex-girlfriend, right? Very unhealthy. <laughs> Very high expectations, a false view of what relationships actually are. And, and as a person with high expectations and unreal fantasies about what relationships are about, friends, it's, it's not hard to imagine that I came into marriage with some really unhelpful expectations, some unreal expectations, and some deluded ideas about what marriage would be. And I know without a doubt that I'm not the only one. That I'm not, I'm not the only one who comes into marriage with certain expectations that are ridiculous, that are fantasy, that are not reality. We come into marriage with expectations of what it will be like, right? What it's for. And these expectations are driven by a number of things. Maybe, maybe they come from watching our parents' marriage. We, we come into our marriage with expectations of what marriage will be because of what, because of what we've seen growing up. Or on the opposite end, we come into marriage with expectations of what marriage will not be because of what we've seen growing up. Or maybe, maybe our expectations are informed by cultural narratives. Some of us in our relationships and in our marriages are driven by what you call the Disney narrative. The narrative that prince and princess live happily ever after. We wouldn't voice it that way, but deep down, that's what we believe or that's what we believe should happen. Or some of us are driven by what I'd call the bachelor, bachelorette narrative. The narrative that, that there's one person out there, one person, and among the many options, the many choices you have, you better get it right. You better find that one person or else you're going to be miserable. Regardless of how we get these expectations, we all have them. And friends, it's, it's necessary to confront which of these expectations, which of these ideas are real, 
and which are just fantasy. If we don't wake up to the reality of what marriage is and is not, then we'll be left to the grown-up alternative of Roller Coaster Tycoon and the story of here, right? We'll be left to just try to soothe ourselves. We'll be hurt because our unreal expectations were not met. So I, so I, I want to get to this text in Matthew 19. And really, this is all just kind of foundation setting. A lot of what I'm going to say today is relatively simple. But I just want to point out a few things for us to notice about the reality of marriage and see how it, how it might, might help us. So, so in this text, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about divorce. Now, the, the text is clear that they're coming in in order to trap Jesus in his answer. They, they ask him a question about the legitimacy of divorce, hoping to get him to answer wrongly so that they can just disqualify and disregard them or disregard him. But, but in their question is one of the first, first truths that we have to confront about marriage. Now, again, their, their question is posed to Jesus with false motives, but the very existence of their question clues us into a truth about marriage. They ask a question about divorce. Friends, the very topic of divorce that some people don't make it, that some people don't spend their whole lives with their spouse, clues us into a reality. <laughs> marriage is not easy. The very legitimacy of their question to Jesus about divorce hangs on the reality that some people will want to get divorced. Some people will want to just end their marriages, which, among many other things, simply reminds us that marriage is not easy. Marriage is not easy. Now, that's probably an obvious statement to you. <laughs> One that you might not even bother writing down in your notes. Of, of course, right? Of course marriage is not easy. But before you assume that you whole, wholeheartedly believe that it is not inherently easy, let me just caution you from assuming that. I think we often assume or think or even dream that it would be easy. And there are things in our culture today that I believe actually try to convince us deep down that marriage really can be easy or even that it should be. I mean, the whole dating scene right now is built online, right? I'm not sure if anyone that I know in the last five years who has met their spouse or their current significant other through any other means than online dating. That, that's how you do it. Now, online dating seems great or at least potentially helpful, but, but one thing that online dating does and other older forms of dating do as well, is that it lures us in with the promise of compatibility, right? You can't start an online dating profile without filling out some sort of descriptors about yourself. And those descriptors are fed into an algorithm that will match you with someone who carries some of those same descriptors, all in hopes that you will match and mesh. If you just find the right person, if you just find someone who's compatible, you'll match and you're me you'll mesh. That's great. You should do that. It's, it's understandable and right to find someone who probably clicks well with what you believe and the type of life that you want to build. But friends, there's no amount of compatibility that's going to rescue you from the difficulty of marriage. There is no amount of compatibility that can rescue you from the difficulty of marriage. 
We have this fantasy that sneaks up under the ground of our hearts. And that fantasy is that if we find the right person, we'll be able to build with ease a life together that is meaningful and beautiful. And any resistance that we do have in our marriage is probably going to come from the outside, right? If I just find the right person, things will be always good. Things will be easy to restore and create life and beauty. And any difficulty we have, it's probably going to be because there's some outside suffering. But friends, that is a fantasy. The reality is this. Marriage is not easy. And its difficulty, the difficulty in marriage, does not come exclusively from outside forces. The difficulty of marriage comes from within. The difficulty of marriage comes from within. The worst advice my wife and I ever got in premarital counseling was this. They said, marriage is not hard, life is. And I remember listening to that and being like, wow, that sounds so profound. And now looking back, I don't know how they were qualified to be premarital counselors. Because it's not just that life is hard. Certainly, life is hard, but life is not hard, and you are just, uh, you know, husband and wife, just neutral, and you're just kind of going through life in difficulty. No, you, you together is hard. Not just life outside of your marriage, but you together. The reality that marriage is the joining together of two sinners under one roof for a lifetime. That is a deeply difficult thing. Two sinners that come into the marriage with patterns of connection and disconnection that are deeply unhealthy. Two sinners that come into marriage with stories and lives that carry hurt and jadedness. Two sinners that come into marriage with a set of selfish expectations that inevitably come up against the set of expectations that the other person has, right? Sin colliding with the sin of the other person, it's not easy. And you know what's even harder? Is that sin doesn't just take advantage of your weaknesses in marriage. The sin actually takes advantage of your strengths as well. Let me put it to you this way. If there's something about me, let me illustrate it. If there's something about me that you like as your pastor, you're like, oh, that's a good strength that he has. Like some of you have encouraged me that you, that, that you, you enjoy my stability in conversations, that I'm able to remain relatively calm, relatively neutral, and not get excited too easily. That's a strength pastorally. How do you think that comes out <laughs> in marriage? The ability to just stay calm. The ability to not react. You think my sin doesn't manipulate that into trying to be the one who's, well, I'm level-headed, so I'm obviously the one who's right. You can laugh with me, friends. <laughs> That's a horrific thing, that sin doesn't just take advantage of your weaknesses, but even your strengths. The very existence of the Pharisee's question about divorce clues us into that very important reality. Marriage is not easy. And again, that's simple, but it is deeply important for you to co-sign on again, once again. Because if we have a small inkling of an idea that marriage is going to be smooth sailing all the time, then we're going to be setting ourselves up for a lot of heartbreak. 
I, I mean, I've heard it said, both from my own mind and from those I've, I've, I've walked with, it isn't supposed to be this hard. It isn't supposed to be this hard, right? Yeah, you're right, it shouldn't be, but sin. So of course it is. Our experience in marriage can be a little bit more realistic when we understand that two sinners coming together is going to produce a great amount of conflict and disappointment. Marriage is not easy. It's just a reality of it. Second, marriage does not exist only for your personal fulfillment. Gosh, did you, I mean, did you pick up on the deeply selfish nature of the Pharisees' question? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And later, after Jesus answers their question, they push back out with their hard hearts and try to convince Jesus that he's wrong by appealing to what Moses allowed them to do, right? I mean, Moses allowed them to simply present a certificate of divorce to their wife, and then they were free. But Jesus points out that this ease with which they were able to divorce their wife came because Moses was acquiescing to their hard heart. He shows that it shouldn't have been this way. You see, in, in Jewish culture at this time, there was a lot of great debate about what would qualify as legitimate reasons to get a divorce. And really, there, there were two main schools of thought that followed two very different rabbis. <laughs> First, there, there, there was the school of thought that followed Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai taught that divorce was only permissible on the grounds of adultery, and this is what Jesus aligns himself with here. But the other school of thought followed the teaching of Rabbi Hillel, and he taught that men could divorce their wives if they found indecency in anything. And they took that anything to the extreme. Rabbi Hillel taught that if there was a spoiled dinner, well, that was indecent and therefore grounds for divorce. He even taught that if the man found someone he was more attracted to, then that qualified as indecency in the wife because someone was more attractive than her and therefore divorce was permissible. Yikes. Thankfully, Jesus elevates here the dignity of marriage and the dignity of women by showing he aligns with the school of Shammai. Divorce is only permissible on very extreme grounds. But why was it that the school of Hillel was so popular? Well, friends, for the exact same reason that divorce is so common today, the pursuit of personal fulfillment at all costs. I mean, even at the cost of a marriage. Should a Jewish man feel unfulfilled in any way? Well, then divorce was permissible. Now, I know us today in the 21st century are rightfully repulsed by such a thought, but our culture is just as guilty of that. I mean, I believe that one of the most common narratives which we use to construct our expect expectations we have about marriage is this, the narrative of project self. Life in the 21st century is built around the self, and so, of course, our marriages would be as well. We enter into marriages because we believe that having this person as a spouse will accent and assist the already ongoing project of building personal fulfillment, which is a dangerously unhealthy reason for a marriage. 
If marriage is about constructing our own sense of self and our own sense of personal fulfillment, then that means as soon as the marriage stops contributing to that project self, then of course we distance ourselves or even get out of the marriage altogether. To put it bluntly, if marriage is built on personal fulfillment, if personal fulfillment is the reason for our marriage, it will also be the reason for your divorce. Marriage is about more than your personal fulfillment. It's not meant to be the place where your sense of self is served as supreme. The reality is this. Marriage is meant to be fulfilling insofar as it serves the greater purpose of marriage. Not the self, but the gospel. Marriage is supposed to be fulfilling. I mean, golly, you think back to Genesis 2, the first recorded words of a human being in scripture are poetry about the marriage Adam is about to enter into. It's supposed to be fulfilling, but not fulfilling for the reasons we often use it for. Not just for ourselves, but rather so that we together in our marriages can have a relationship that is filled with grace and mercy and restarts and reconciliation and love all the things that the gospel hinges on. The sense of fulfillment that comes from our marriage is meant to be drawn from that source, not the source of ourselves as supreme. The reality of marriage is that the joy of marriage comes from a greater source than simply how it accents your sense of self. Your personal joy in marriage is meant to be drawn from the well of being a living picture of how close grace can bring people together, of how beautiful grace is, a living picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of what marriage is for. It's for you, but in a much deeper way than you often approach it. You should have joy. You should have fulfillment, but not because it's just fulfilling yourself, but rather because together with this other human being, you are illustrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, the last reality of marriage that we need to wake up to is to see that marriage is not ultimate. After Jesus answers the question of the Pharisees, his disciples are really honest with him. Did you pick that up in the text? They basically say, well, whew, If marriage is that binding and therefore that difficult, who could even stand to get married? That's what the disciples say. Oh, Jesus, if it's that hard, why should any of us even do it? They're shocked by the exclusivity and deep commitment of marriage that Jesus lays out. And did you pick up on Jesus's response? He doesn't really calm them them down. He doesn't say, oh, get over it. Just get married and it will be fine. No, instead, he basically says, yeah, So what? The the disciples' panic around the difficulty of marriage is answered by Jesus setting marriage in its proper place. In his response, he simply says, yeah, you're right. Marriage is heavy and a sacred thing that not all people should partake in. So? So what? Jesus goes on to point out that there are some who remain unmarried because of forces outside of their control. Jesus says, yeah, this exists. He points out that some remain unmarried because of personal convictions that dedicate themselves to exclusively the work of of God's kingdom. 
All of which Jesus affirms and says, that's okay. Jesus doesn't make marriage out to be this ultimate thing. He's very level-headed about the reality of marriage, but also very level-headed about the place of marriage. It is not ultimate. It is important, so important that he defines specific parameters, parameters for the breaking of the covenant, but not so important that he thinks everyone should just go get married already. He himself was not. Marriage is not ultimate. I mean, even when Jesus quotes Genesis 2 about how a man shall leave his father and his mother, we read that and we really clue into that phrase, one flesh. But I think we often only notice the the oneness piece, right? Not the other piece, one flesh. Now, within that word flesh throughout scripture, it always carries the connotation of impermanence. I mean, flesh throughout scripture is seen as transient and impermanent. And so the weight of marriage is there in that phrase, one flesh, it signifies importance, but also by including the word flesh in that phrase shows that it is not of supreme importance. Marriage is deeply important and sacred. It is joined by God and overseen by him, but it is still two human beings coming together into something that will one day fade away at death. Marriage is not ultimate. It is profound, but it is not ultimate. Which means, friends, what kind of weight are you putting on your spouse? Because you think, you, you believe it is ultimate. It's the one thing that matters supremely. And again, you wouldn't say these things out loud. But do you put a weight on your spouse to fulfill you, to be something for you that they never could be, nor were they intended to be? There is no greater stressor on a marriage than to have expectations of another human being to fulfill you like only God can. That is a weight no marriage can bear for very long. Marriage is profound, but not ultimate. Those are just a few realities about marriage that we need to wake up to, friends. That we need to see some of the fantasies around marriage and around how we think about marriage, what we look for in it, and come back to reality so that we can actually enjoy the thing. Amen? To look at it with with truth, to tell the truth about what marriage is so that we can enjoy it. So that we can actually enjoy it rather than to just use it. What fantasies do you have about marriage? What unrealistic expectations do you currently have, whether you're married or single? What do you think is there or at least supposed to be there? You need to confront them. You need to confront that, friend. Because that fantasy is going to work for ground in your marriage. Now, I want to I close with two quick encouragements. First, this whole sermon was about the reality of marriage, and, and part of that means confronting the reality of your marriage. It's kind of a double entendre, not just the reality of what marriage is, but also the reality of where your marriage is at. Can you tell the truth of that? 
Can you really tell the truth of where your marriage is at? Where are you really at? Can you tell the truth? Can you be honest? (laughs) Rather than live in fantasy of like, oh, we're fine, but really you're just living like roommates. Where's your marriage really at? I want you to think about that. I want you to confront that. And then with that, I want want you to practice that reality within gospel community. I wanna encourage you over the next four or five weeks to take the reality of where you're at in your marriage and bring it to community. And that goes for those of you who are single as well. The next five weeks is a wonderful opportunity to divulge some of the burdens and frustrations and bitterness to one another in community. To be able to say, I'm angry at God because I'm not married yet. The next four or five weeks is a wonderful opportunity for you to do that. For you to talk about the reality of that in marriage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that when one part of the body grieves, the whole body grieves with it. These next four or five weeks is a great opportunity to actually practice that. If you're married, tell the truth of your marriage in community. Walk with other people. Open up with those you're close with. And if you're single, admit the ways that you hate that reality. And not just privately, inwardly, but with others who are in community. And then finally, remember, over the next five weeks, remember that as we confront some of these fantasies and as we look at some of the things that contest for our marriage, all of it is meant to bring us to Jesus Christ. All of it is meant to bring us to him. If we walk away from this series as relatively better spouses but not better disciples, we've missed it. Everything we're gonna talk about finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And also, the gospel holds all of the resources necessary to either soothe you and comfort you in your singleness that you don't want, maybe you don't want, I'm not gonna assume that for all of you, and to restore and reconcile the places of hurt and woundedness in your marriage. The gospel of Jesus Christ holds all of those resources necessary to let that happen. So friends, I just wanna exhort you, can we together over the next five weeks think about this topic, really investigate our own marriages as we go through this, but also keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, who is gracious, who is perfect, who is our fulfillment, who is the one that we can actually put the weight of our satisfaction on. And find peace, find rest, flourishing and wholeness. Jesus is the point of your marriage. And even in this series on marriage, over the next five weeks, Jesus is the point. He's the one who can change things. He's the one who can comfort us and the one who can heal things. So let's just exhort you, would you keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ? We're gonna talk about some heavy things. If you look at that bulletin, grace and bitterness, hiding, vulnerability, peace and animosity, love and indifference, we're gonna talk about some real things over the next four weeks. And we better have our eyes focused on Jesus Christ if we wanna make it out better and more whole. Let me pray for that exact thing. Father, 
Thank you that. God, you're the one who is truthful. You're the one who tells the truth at all times about ourselves. And from that, we, we can have the courage to tell the truth of our marriages. How we came into it with expectations that were unreal and how those expectations have actually ended up wounding the bond between husband and wife. We can tell the truth of that, but we don't have to fear the truth of that because you are also the God of grace, the God who restores and comforts and reconciles. So I pray that over the next four weeks, God, you would do just that. You'd help us to, to see the things that are fighting for our marriage, the realities and mindsets and ambitions and desires that are fighting for ground in our marriage and that you would comfort us and even help us by your spirit to move toward health, to move toward flourishing and wholeness, God. So God, would you be our helper? Would you be our comforter in all things, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're gonna enter into a time of response and, and first we're just gonna be silent. And I would just encourage you, whether married or single, would you just reflect on Jesus Christ? I think it would just be wonderful to start this series off, yes, thinking about reality and fantasy, all that stuff, but also just with a wonderful, vivid picture of Jesus, of who he is and how trustworthy he is. And so let's, let's be silent and reflect and then as the band plays, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to come and take communion and remember that the body of Jesus was broken for you. The blood of Jesus was poured out for you to wash you clean from all sin. So let's, let's reflect and then when you're ready, you can, you can come and partake and remember the death of Jesus Christ. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.